you guys why if you came in this door over here, this is what happens when the children's leave um, chalk laying around. So there's a big it says Ozzy. That's actually a kid that comes here. He's a little he's it's about this big, right? So he apparently writes his name out there, and I'm thinking everybody's gonna think it's like Ozzy Osbourne. Crazy train. So I found the chalk and I wrote rocks next to his name. You're going to be a tough crowd today, I can tell. You're like, that's not funny. It is if you know Ozzy. That's all I'm saying. So welcome to Element. If you are new or newer, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes that goes deeper into what we're talking about, as well as some questions that will take you a little bit deeper as well. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Uh, if you click on Events in Uversion, we'll come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, questions, verses, announcements, all that goes along with today's message. See, I don't have a whole lot to tell you before we start today, huh? You're like, what's going on? No more funny stories besides Ozzy? No, I thought that one was good enough for you. <laughs> Why don't you stay on there reading the God's Word? So Acts chapter 5, verse 13, and it says, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who live in such a way that by how we love you and love others, that your church will be held in high esteem. That we wouldn't be a place that just wants to cause division, but a place that brings unity and hope, because we are centered on the hope that is you. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are in the book of Acts, or well, the first half of the book of Acts. This is week 14. We only got about 23 weeks left. So settle in for the trip. Um, as I uh, put this week's message together, I, I had all these questions about how I'm going to make this work out and make it make sense to you because there's a lot of background to cover to, to pull it all together in a way that gives you the hope that encourages you uh, to live in the healing that Jesus brings. And I'm going to warn you, we're going to jump around a lot today. You're going to feel like it's a little disjointed, but trust me, I will bring it together in the end. I'm a professional. You'll see. I, I hope. Uh, last week may have been disturbing to you a little bit, and so I'm going to recap that as we move forward in a way that hopefully I can show why Luke puts all of these sections together the way that he does. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter, or, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 5. And again, you can jump around, don't let it be too disjointed for you. Uh, last week we looked at one of the most debated and misunderstood sections in the book of Acts. A God apparently kills two people who lie to him and the rest of the church. In Acts 5.11 it says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And I read that I think, I bet it did. Because... <laughs> Okay. Now, during this time, you get a little bit of background. Okay, uh, people were seeing uh, those who were in need around them. The Roman government had imposed taxes that were upwards of eighty-five percent, and so people were poor. They they couldn't find a way to meet all of their needs. And because of Jesus, the church steps into these situations and started making sure everybody had their needs met. Chapter four ends with this guy named Barnabas, who was a Levite, and Levites originally were not supposed to own land. He had a field and he sold it. In 
Acts 4.37, it says he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, let me just, just talk about this for a minute, because a lot of people look at this and they think the churches are, are just into money. Uh, this is not that. This is, this is not, oh, uh, the apostles need a new bling donkey to show how holy they are, so come and give them your money. Uh, it's not, if you really love your pastor, you'll make sure he drives around in a Mercedes, preferably a McLaren. Right? So let me set your, set your mind to these. Uh, Element is as transparent as we can be with what you guys give. The most expensive undertaking that we have ever done is trying to build Element a functional home, not simply for us, but actually for the people in our city as well. And Planting Roots is our journey and how we're doing that. If you have questions about that, you can grab booklets in the back to kind of lay it all out. Uh, we also take 10% right off the top of whatever comes in and set it aside for church planting and helping people in need. Uh, me personally, I actually make less today working at Element than I did 10 years ago as a youth pastor in another church. If you came to my house for baptisms last week, yes, my house is very nice. But it's because my wife like, and I bought here, and then we moved here, and bought this, and we kind of moved our way up. And we bought that house as a trashed foreclosure. And the only reason it looks that nice is I twist my friend's arms all the time to help me make it look nice. And so when we talk about money and giving, giving it's because God calls us to be generous and share. And many times as a church body coming together, we can vet more needs and see further and farther than we can on our own. We want to do all that we do to honor Jesus. And so chapter 4 in Acts... It ends with this Levite who's gotten off track. He comes, he surrenders his life to the living Jesus, and he gives not just of himself, but his possessions as well. Ministry happens, people get fed, and hope he's moving forward because of the generosity of people like Barnabas. Then when chapter 5, verse 1 starts, it's almost the exact opposite story. Chapter 5, verse 1 actually starts with the word, but... And then it lays out the difference of what's to come. Because here you meet Ananias and Sapphira. You can say Sapphira, and it works. I say Sapphira because I read Aragon. Anybody? Okay. And so it's, and so I just call her Sapphira, so we're good with that. Uh, you were told that they also sold a piece of land just like Barnabas, but they kept some of the money back while trying to lie to the apostles and to God that they were giving it all. Ananias comes in alone. He lies. The apostle Peter sees this. He calls Ananias out for not lying to him or to the community Ananias was supposed to be a part of, but to God. And don't misunderstand the text. Ananias, you are told, has the freedom to do whatever he wants with the money from the land. He could have kept it all. He could have only given a part. The issue wasn't the money. The issue is never the money. It's what he did. He lied. In Acts 5.5, it says, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Now, Luke, as a medical doctor, uses actually a medical term here, and it means expired. For breathe his last, it's expired. Like you have milk in your fridge, it expires. And you know because it smells bad. When we die, we start to smell bad after a while. Just like, you all have an expiration date. Ananias had his, and this was his expiration date. Peter did not utter a curse. It may not even have been a punitive miracle like some people believe. Like, as an example, a couple years ago, I actually preached to you guys a series of messages that I got out of a book that I read that really impacted my life. I thought it would impact your life, so I took a bunch of material and I used it. I thought I referenced it well enough, but apparently not, because someone said, hey, you're quoting out of this, you didn't quote that person, and I'm like, 
I didn't mean to. I'm, I'm sorry. And someone's like, well, you're plagiarizing. I'm like, I'm not trying to plagiarize at all. But in the middle of all this, I, I had this burning up my back and up my neck. I started to lose sleep. I felt like I got caught robbing a bank or killing someone's grandma or something. And as I'm losing sleep, I'm praying to God, God, do you think I'm trying to plagiarize? Because I'm not, you know, and, and, I, and I'm still fairly young, I, I think. My back tells me something different. But that really kind of stressed me out. I was really stressed out about it. Being caught doing something that's not just embarrassing, but could be potentially credential shattering, can have a profound effect on our hearts and our souls. And I'm not saying God's spirit didn't kill Ananias, but I also think it's entirely reasonable to believe that he may have had a heart attack at a shock and embarrassment. Like, there's a lot of you who hate confrontation in any regard. Like, it's, ah, like someone says, booty, you're like, oh, I'm out of here, I gotta go. Sapphira comes in later, not knowing the fate of her husband, and Peter asks her in Acts 5.8, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Now, Peter is not trying to kill her. Okay, it's not like I'm going to just throw it out there. See, boom, lady! No, he's not trying to kill her. He's trying to give her space for honesty. It's what he's trying to do. But what he finds out is they made this plan together. And it's important to note that Peter tells her the issue is they agreed to test God. Like, oh, God's not really going to know. And she falls down dead as well. And again, I'm not saying it's not a miracle. It, it could be. But imagine being caught in the worst thing you've ever done and then finding out your spouse is dead as well. I mean, that could cause a lot of... Issues. Again, Acts 5.11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. I mean, I read this, and it still does that to me a little bit. N.T. Wright wrote about this section in Acts 5. He says, If we watch with excited fascination as the early church does wonderful healing, stands up to the bullying authorities, makes converts right and left, and lives a life of astonishing poverty sharing, we may have to face the fact that if you want to be a community which seems to be taking the place of the temple of the living God, you mustn't be surprised that the living God takes you seriously. Seriously enough to make it clear that there is no such thing as cheap grace. If you invoke the power of the Holy One, the one who will eventually right all wrongs and sort out all cheating and lying, he may just decide to do some of that work already in advance. In Acts, what you see, it's about what God is doing through people's lives. Ananias and Sapphira, they are internal matters within the church. And Luke doesn't really spend a lot of time on that, but he's trying to show you how things are progressing. So you can continue to Acts 5, 12 through 16, which is where we're actually at today, where the focus goes outwards to the crowds that are around them. So what you have is internal and external, meaning churches should take care of their business. I mean, if you've got something going on, take care of it. So the world outside, when you reach out to them, says, yes, they're getting their stuff together. They hold one another accountable. Last week's title was Accountability That Exposes Us. But we want to understand, is this supposed to go outward to see what Jesus is doing in the world? And this week is called A Hope That Heals Us. Acts 5, verses 12, starting in verse 12, says this. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hand of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some." When you look at the book of Acts, these are what are called descriptive texts. They tell you what happened, not necessarily prescriptive telling you what to do. Like a prescriptive text telling you what to do in the scriptures would be, Husbands, love your wives. Debt is bad. Be a good steward. Don't steal. Love God above everything else. Descriptive text tells you what happened. Judas hung himself. Peter denied Jesus three times. David had sex with Bathsheba, a woman who was not his wife. You can't confuse the two. You don't read the Bible and say, well, i got to hang myself. It's in the Bible. 
Don't, okay? Don't do that. It's descriptive. It's what happens. It doesn't mean you have to do it or that it always happens. A lot of things in Acts are descriptive texts. It doesn't say this happens everywhere for all time. I mean, can God heal people by having one of his servants' shadow fall on them? Well, sure, he can. But does he always do that? Well, no. I mean, let me illustrate this with the ever so non-controversial subject of speaking in tongues. Okay? In Acts 2... Acts 10, Acts 19, uh, you see speaking in tongues. In Acts 19, Paul goes into a place called Ephesus, and there's these guys here, and they say, well, we know God. And Paul asks, well, do you know about Jesus and the promise of the Holy Spirit? Because when we love and surrender our lives to Jesus, God gives us his spirit. His spirit leads us. His spirit guides us. Uh, His spirit takes us where he needs us to be. So Paul asks, do you have the spirit? And they say, who? We only know about John the Baptist. Well, John is the guy who preached repentance and wait for the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. These guys at this point in Ephesus were waiting about 20 years. Maybe they're not too bright. They could have just gone to Jerusalem and asked some questions, but they didn't. And so Paul tells them about Jesus. They speak in tongues. It is descriptive. It does not mean everyone everywhere for all times has to speak in tongues. We can't make laws where there aren't any. Here it was a sign for a purpose and a reason. Later in Acts 19, verses 11 and 12, it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. It is descriptive. If you don't take it as descriptive, it just gets weird as to try and make it fit our cultural context, because I've had a cold, I have blown my nose into hankies, and none of them ever healed me. I mean, God is free, God can do whatever he wants to do, but you've got to understand descriptive versus prescriptive texts. Not everyone should run out and start a hanky ministry. It's not for you. It says God can heal however he wants, and God can do some pretty amazing things. In Acts 5, 14 and 15, it says, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. That's the point. People were coming to believe in Jesus, so that even they even carried out the sick in the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. This isn't telling us as a church that we need to start a brand new shadow ministry. Okay, oh, what's it? this is our shadow ministry. We're like, Peter, put people in our shadows. That's not what it means. This is actually about hope. That God is moving and God is doing incredible things in people's lives. At the start, the apostles, they're on a roll. They're successful in ministry. They're popular with the people by preaching the gospel. And people respond to the news of Jesus and they come to believe. And there are signs and wonders that God did in the midst of this so that it would validate what this ministry was. So much so that sometimes Peter was walking by and people would put other people in his shadow in the hope that it would heal them. Not that shadows have any power. It's what God is doing. But let me talk about this just for a minute. We have this thing called dualism in our world today. We want to separate the physical and the spiritual. Like medicine tends to do this for us. Like you have, see people have halves rather than holes. Like you go to a doctor for your body. And you go to like a priest or a rabbi or a therapist or a pastor for your soul. And yet scripture speaks about how these two things are supposed to come together as a whole person, treating body and soul. The Bible assumes that God is involved in the healing of both of those things, like James 5 says. And some people, I think, today have emotional issues because of a physical problem, and some people suffer because of a spiritual problem. And at times it's difficult to distinguish between the two. In Acts 5.16, it says the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And people will read that and they'll go, oh, unclean spirits. You can't blame everything on Satan. 
C.S. Lewis says people fall into two categories and they're both wrong. One denies demonic existence and the other one blames everything on demons. Oh, I got the demon of drinking. Oh, I got the demon of porn. I got the demon of diarrhea. I mean, that's a, that's a bad job. I don't know how the demon got that job. That's a bad job for, even for a demon, okay? But the Bible says Satan baits the hook and we're the ones who bite. You can't blame anyone else for your sin. It's why we're told that God is the one who gives us a new heart. But maybe everyone who is depressed and hears voices, they're not all crazy. Some are, but they aren't all crazy. Scripture says Satan hates the image bearers of God because they, are, they, because they carry his image. And he wants to destroy that. I know, to some of you, this sounds like nonsense. But there are two worlds. Like, the usual suspects at the end of it, it ends with this line. The greatest lie the devil ever told was convincing the world he didn't exist. Kaiser Soze, right? What, what the apostles are doing here is they're bringing hope and healing to both aspects, to the physical and the spiritual. The sick, the oppressed, the possessed, the hurting, the helpless, the alone, the afraid. They are preaching the gospel, and God is confirming it to a culture who desperately needs it. The church is becoming the new temple. They're replacing the hope of a place with the hope of a person who is Jesus, and this is what God is doing. I mean, through the rest, uh, the reason we're doing our, our series in Acts, we're going to actually stop in Acts chapter 13. That's where the book switches over to following the Apostle Paul. But much of what happens in the first 12 chapters with Peter will happen in the last chapters with the Apostle Paul. Like up through verse 12, you see Peter heal people just like Paul does. Both have supernatural knowledge. Both raise someone from the dead. Both get released from prison supernaturally. What Luke is trying to do is show you how these two ministries are about hope and putting Peter and Paul on the same footing. The first 12 chapters deal with Jews. The last chapters deal with Gentiles. And what it's telling you is that the hope that is there, it's for all people, that we are God's children. God is calling us all home to his hope in the gift of Jesus. The miracles you see here are to show Peter's ministry was from God. Later, the miracles that Paul does, they're to show that Paul's ministry was from God. God was in the church unifying us around the person of Jesus. In Galatians 3.28, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is all distinctions we have between one another in arrogance have been done away with with the cross and the resurrection. We still have differences because of creation, like you don't wake up after becoming a Christian and suddenly have androgynous plumbing. You know, you're still male and you're still female. What Paul is arguing against is cultural distinctions. Cultural distinctions, not creation distinctions. And what Acts shows and what Paul talks about in Galatians 3 is this idea that all petty human things that we let divide us from one another are done away with in Jesus. When our lives become about worshiping Jesus, we become a unified people who can speak a message of hope and reconciliation and unity. That's what it's telling us. And Luke gets a lot of flack today from liberal scholars because when he talks about miracles, he doesn't say, oh, the story was told or, oh, it was said that this. Luke says, this is what happened. And so it tells you he was either there or he carefully investigated these things. Luke is not some half-in-his-mind crack addict with a penchant for stories. Luke is a medical doctor. 
G.W.H. Lampe was a British theologian. He dedicates his life to researching the accuracy of the miracles in the Bible. And this is what he wrote. Miracles in Luke's understanding of the matter are part and parcel of the entire mission of witness. What have we been talking about throughout the book of Acts? What's the point? That we are witnesses. He says the whole is miraculous insofar as it is a continuous mighty work of God. By the divine power, the gospel is preached, converts are made, the church is established in unity and brotherhood, the whole mission is affected by supernatural power. What Luke understands is that he is living in times promised by God throughout the ages. Promises and prophecies are being fulfilled and miracles are signs of that fulfillment. And what is the greatest miracle in all of this? It's not hankies and it's not shadows. It is the unity that God is bringing among his people. Uh, Jesus says in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, the, the hope of Jesus that heals us is not just physical, it's not just spiritual, it's not just emotional, it's all of these things. It is a hope that heals relationships, first off, between us and God. That's why Jesus dies, takes away our sins so we can be united with God again. But it also heals relationships between us and one another. I mean, do you have a relationship in your life that you think is hopeless? God's miracle is that he can bring reconciliation to that. But you have to understand, it's not, oh, God, fix that person. Oh, God, change that guy. It's that God's going to work on you and begin to change you, and that's the miracle. Love and hope for us become a public issue, lived out outside. It's not private or in secret. This is why Jesus says, they'll all know that you're my disciples by how you love one another. That's what everyone's going to know. It's public. We follow his example. Our love belongs outside the church. It tells you in, in Acts 5, 12 through 16, that this is how they relate to outsiders. It says these miracles are done among the people. Those are people who don't believe yet, among the people. We're told that none of the rest dare join them, but held them in high esteem. And some people think this is like fear of Peter's miracles and, and what he's doing or, or deep respect. I think it's that Peter preaching the gospel of Jesus is illegal. They told him, stop doing it. They've already thrown him into prison once. They're going to throw him again into prison next week. We'll look at that next week as well. And I think they're a little afraid to join them because they don't want to go to jail. You know, but because of the hope and love and unity, everyone respected them, even though at times they stood against certain things in their culture. What would that be like today? You know, what if the people around us could, uh, could, would say the church was like that? That, yes, sometimes there are things in Scripture, and we must stand against certain things in, in our culture. But yet we do it in such a way that people are honored, and people are loved, and people are brought back together. Because that's our call. Let me kind of end with this. What creates a lack of love and division among uh, people? What destroys hope among people and between us and God and us and each other? And the answer to that is sin. In Genesis, God creates man and woman for the purpose of oneness. They have friendship, they have intimacy with one another, they have intimacy with God, and sin comes in, and they immediately hide from each other, and they hide from God. The moment sin enters the equation, sin isolates them from God and each other. Sin kills life, it kills community, it kills hope, it pushes us farther away. And yet God is a triune God. And God says, I have made you in my image. God has a relationship in himself because we're made in his image. We are made to have a relationship with one another as well. Sometimes people get really isolated and then they get really weird and they get really sad and they need to go to therapists and get counseling and medication. What most people really need is love. 
They need to give love away. They need to receive love. Soren Kierkegaard once said, love is the works of love. Love is emotion, and love is actions. It's like if you're a dad and you have a child, after they pop out, you don't say, oh, daddy loves you. See you at your high school graduation. Love is involved. Love is involved. The Father God is involved in his creation. He sends his son to participate in it through actions to love us as his people. So, so what creates you know, this division between us? Why don't we offer hope and love to one another? I'll give you some reasons. Number one is laziness. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 5 says, if you're lazy, you're not going to have friendships. That's just how it's going to go. Lazy people don't put in the hard work or hours to participate with each other. Uh, if you have friends who keep calling you to do something and you keep saying no, do your friends keep calling? No, they don't. I got a good example of this. Uh, some of my friends like to go ride their mountain bikes. Right? And they come, hey, you want to ride mountain bikes? A couple times I said yes, and I went with them. I borrowed one of their mountain bikes, and I realized, I do not like mountain biking. <laughs> and I'm like, this, this is, why would people do this to themselves? Right? <laughs> right? And, and sometimes I'm like, why don't you guys call me anymore? Because I never go! Because I never go! Sometimes people stop calling because you always say no. Maybe you should learn how to say yes. And not be so lazy and don't and stop blaming them for saying no to you or stopping calling. Another reason is selfishness. I mean, some, a lot of times we think our friends are there for us. They're there to make us feel happy. Our friends are also there for us to give love to. Selfish people will sit at home waiting for their friends to call them. While your friends are sitting a couple miles away at their house waiting for you to call them. Maybe you should call each other and, and meet in the middle. That's why they put Starbucks there. Uh, time. We, we think we are so busy, we're so important, we got so many things going on, we don't have time for trivial stuff like friendships. And the scripture tells us we are created for relationships with God and with one another. God weaves a rhythm into creation of work and rest. I mean, if you don't work, you need to learn how to work, right? But if you work all the time, you need to learn how to rest and make relationships with one another. Uh, next one is we don't really want people, we don't want people to see us. We don't want people to know us. If they really got to know me, they, they wouldn't really like me. If people come over to your house, they're going to get to know you pretty well. Uh, people don't know what community looks like. This is, I mean, we are, we are a culture who watches reality TV. In reality TV, they got to lock people on an island to get them to live in community with one another. And then what they do is they boat them off. It's very Darwinian. It's not cool. Okay? <laughs> but we don't know what love looks like. And friendships take courage. I mean, friendships take a lot of courage. We have this fairy tale idea that we're going to make friends with people. They're going to come over. We're going to make cookies and hold hands and sing Kumbaya. It's going to be so wonderful. But friends can be jerks. Friends will do things that hurt you. And what do you do at that point? Well, you realize friendship requires forgiveness and love. Jesus, he is at a dinner. We call it the Last Supper today. He's at a dinner with his friends. And what are his friends going to do to him? They're going to deny him and run away. One of those friends is going to hand him over authorities and he's going to be killed. What do we do when something like that happens? You resurrect like Jesus and you love like Jesus. I mean, think about it. All things considered, Jesus is a pretty decent guy, okay? And his friends plot, run away from him and one of them kills him. Hope, love, and unity is hard. Community is hard. But we must work for it because we were made for it. We're to love in such a way that as people come into contact with us, they know we are children of the living God by how we learn to love one another. Not run away from one another, but love one another. That is a miracle of God. In Romans 5, 8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us by action, by pursuing us. If you want to take the vernacular of what we looked at today, we are a people 
who are laid out before God. And like Peter's shadow passes over these people who are sick, God's shadow has passed over us. And he is a God who has begun to heal us. Our sin made us enemies of each other and God. And I will tell you, all secular attempts at hope and unity and love are going to fail because they cannot deal with the sin issue. Sin is the dividing point between us and each other and us and God. And so Jesus comes while we are sinners, and he loves us by dying for us. That is the message the book of Acts is calling us to be a witness to, that our sin has been forgiven in Jesus, and we now have a ministry of reconciliation, of unity, of hope. God has placed all of us in ministry in this world where we are, so there would be hope by how we love one another And then we'd point everybody to Jesus so that in Christ, the whole world would actually finally come to unity of worship of him. That is the hope that heals us. But we have to understand is sometimes in this, there is a strong hand of telling the truth and a soft hand of giving grace. And and those two things need to learn how to come together. That, That we have a vertical line that has been restored between us and Jesus, but also a horizontal line between us and each other. It's one of the reasons the scripture calls us to be a family. People in your family will drive you nuts. You know this. But the church is also called a family. I told you this a couple weeks ago. If you can find a weirdo in your family, you will find a weirdo in the church. Okay? I, again, I can point out a few. Right here is one of them. Right? Sean Jones, raise his hand right here in the back. Well, you have to understand that we will never come together in unity by preaching politics and candidates and money at each other. We will only come together in unity when we lift up Jesus first. He is the one that brings us together. Our goal isn't to get everybody on the same page to vote that we vote. Our goal is to get everybody on the same page to worship Jesus because he is the one who brings unity and reconciliation. We preach Jesus first. That's what we do, because that is the hope of the world. So we lift him up in all things. This is why we talk about communion. Communion is meant to recenter us on the person of Jesus. And this is why you break that cracker. It reminds of his body that was broken for us, because we deserve to die, but he died for us in our place to pay for our sin, what separated us from God and each other. You dip in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me to wash us clean again. And Jesus rises to live a new life, that new life that he gives to us. Where we get to be a people who go out and spread the message of his name first above all else. Because he is the God who saves us. The band's going to come up. As they do. We invite you guys to take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer uh, about anything, they'd love to pray with you. Uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago about something I wanted you guys to pray about. And that's the idea that God would begin to do something new with us and the entire world, that we would start to pray that God would use us as his witnesses, that his, that his power would come in a, in a real personal way with us so that we would begin to be this people who live out and speak and preach the gospel, that we would do all things that point to who he is and what he has done. That we, wouldn't, that we wouldn't preach our own self-centeredness or what we think. We would preach Jesus first, above all things. And that's what we should be praying for, that he is the hope that heals us all, and he is the one we lift up. Um, there's some offering boxes on the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. Uh, we don't pass a plate. It's a response to what he has done. And there's food in the back. Uh, my friend Pete brought like eight boxes of donuts for some reason. Well, it's because he's awesome, you know, but 
because he loves Jesus. So he brings lots of donuts, all right? <laughs> anyway, grab something to eat. Meet some other people. Uh, maybe go out to lunch or dinner this week or, or take some of the sermon notes and the questions and maybe ask them among your family at home this week and go a little bit deeper. You know, ask, ask some of the questions of, of what are you lifting up in your life? You know, do you, do you think that if everybody just agreed with you, you know, about, you know, it is election season, right? So if everybody agree, agreed with you about your political candidate, well, then everything would be better. You know, is that what you think? That's a lie. That's a lie. Only by lifting up Jesus first will the world come to unity. That's why we lift him up first. What we need to understand is that when we have these conversations about stuff, what are we preaching? Are we preaching more our views on something, or are we preaching Jesus? Are we lifting him up? And that's what we need to lift up, Jesus in all things, because he is the one who heals, and he is the one who saves. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us to be a people who become re-centered upon you, that we'd understand the hope that you have given to us in ways that it becomes real, where it's lived out in our friendships and even lived out in places where we have people we would perceive as enemies. That we'd begin to honor you in all the ways that we speak and all the ways that we live. That we would understand that you are the one who rescues and you are the one who saves. That nothing else could take away what separates us from each other and from you except the gift of the grace of your Son. Teach us to live loving you first and foremost in all things that you would be lifted up in our lives by how we love one another, that you would gain great glory, that we would live in great joy and great unity because we honor and love you first. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.